Stay up on the real culture of Detroit by tuning in to the Detroit is Different Podcast Network weekly. Music, art, business, comedy, and never-before-told stories from the people of Detroit. Today we have with us Katrina Stubman, and she is the Chief Development Officer at Barbara and Carmano's Cancer Institute. Hello. Hello. How are you today? I'm well. Good. We are so happy to have you with us and working along with the uh, flexibility of things today. Yeah, we're we're in an environment of learning a lots of things for the first time. So I'm I'm definitely into learning. I'm with, I'm here for it. So I'm appreciative that you even wanted me to join you today and in this in this space. So absolutely, I've been wanting to get with you for some time now. So it finally worked out. So we can get together. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, I am just, you know, impressed by the work that you do is inspiring to me. And the funny part was when me and you met up, you were sharing with me, you knew my mother from like years and years Mm -hmm. and years ago. (laughs) And that was completely a trip to me because, you know, we just had a good click and connected so well. And you're like, wait a minute. That's your mom. So uh-huh. it's such a small yeah. world. <laughs> it is. It is. And you know what? What's interesting is your mother has been an inspiration to me throughout my young adult years and adult years. Um, I have known your mom, and I think I shared this with you since I was the age of 15. And I have a problem with telling people that I'm 44 years old. So that's a long time annoying your mom. And every time that I would interact with her, she always had words of um, inspiration, affirmation and empowering mm-hmm. words for me. And so, I mean, she was someone who spoke into my life. And so, you know, I make it a point if I have an opportunity and, and the other person is willing to hear it. I like to speak words of encouragement and affirmation and empowerment into others' lives. Wow. Yeah, that sounds like my mother. I love it. That's your mama. It <laughs> sounds like my mama. I guess, you know, what makes it so profound to me is you never know the impact you're making in someone's life. You know, and that is the reason why they it's the same, treat everybody with kindness and you never know how far it goes. And for you and I to connect and that be your experience with my mom. And right. Me. The energy we put out is the energy we Absolutely. Back. So Katrina, tell us a little bit about you and where you're from and we want to know who you are. Oh. I am complicated and a whole lot. I think that's, <laughs> that's what can sum it up. Um, so I am born and raised from Detroit, Michigan. So I'm a native Detroiter. 
um, grew up right here. Um, I'm kind of uh, both east side and west side um, because my fam- my parents, I'm the only child by both my parents. They both remarried, had children. So one lived east and one lived west. And so I grew up on both sides of the of the city and I attended um, Detroit Public Schools. Um, I'm a proud graduate of Cass High School, class of 94. That's right, (laughs) CT. And I bleed green and white. Um, So even though um, I have my master's from University of Michigan School of Social Work, I attended Michigan State for my undergrad. So I am a Spartan as well. So I am a Michigander through and through. I did spend some time in Chicago um, and then returned to Detroit to raise my family and to start and raise my family, um, which my husband is also a native Detroiter as well. Um, So, yeah, I'm a mother. I have a bonus child that is 21, going on 22 this year. I have a daughter, biological daughter, who is 15, going on 16 this year. She attends Mercy High School. And... um, I am, as I said, a wife. I am also um, a health professional. My, like I said, my training is in social work. So um, I am technically trained in interpersonal practices. So therapy um, is technically what that is. Uh, one-on-one uh, therapy sessions, tangible resource um, selection for individuals um, and getting to the bottom of the problems. But I work in a macro environment. So that means I assist um, on a larger scale, an organization with the philanthropic efforts that they have to support their research, to support their cancer care to patients, and to uh, support their infrastructure needs. So that's me in a nutshell. I am uh, a lover of fashion, of food. I can tell because you're definitely all things women. Whenever <laughs> I see you. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm I'm a social person, and I am an open book. So um, one thing I didn't share is that I am a 14-year breast cancer survivor that was diagnosed at 30. So I was considered a young um, cancer survivor. So that's me in a nutshell. I'm also a daughter, a cousin, a niece, and all that good stuff. All that great stuff. You have, you know, there's a lot of good (laughs) things you said that I want to get into, starting with, (laughs) I as well graduated with my master's from the University of Michigan, but I do bleed Mm -hmm. green and white as well. I went to Michigan State for undergrad, so that is another reason why we definitely click, because Here we go. Parallel high school, college and grad Mm -hmm. school. So, Mm -hmm. you know what? I knew I liked you for a reason. (laughs) (laughs) I knew it. I knew it. So, Katrina, I want to ask you some just some casual questions. Mm -hmm. One, who was one of your role models or celebrity females that you looked up to coming up? Ooh, celebrity female? Mm. Mm-hmm. Diana Ross. <laughs> okay. All right. I am, yes, I am just, I, I love Diana Ross for so many reasons. And for one of the biggest reasons is because she's always been authentic. I don't think that she, what you see is what you get. I can't imagine her being any other way. Um, and I, I saw her a few years back in concert and it, I mean, it rained true, but, um, 
I've just always loved Diana Ross. I love her energy. I love her authenticity. I loved her style. I loved her candor. I just loved her. So that would be a that would be my celebrity um, person. I would think um, from a okay. local celebrity, though, I would say I remember seeing an article about Carol Goss in the newspaper. And um, if you know anything about Carol Goss, she really was the um, the driving force for the Skillman Foundation uh, for many years. And she has her um, master's in social work. So that's what inspired me um, about her. And I just I loved her tenacity. They, they kind of did her her life story in a newspaper article and I clipped it. And I said, one day I'm going to meet this lady. One day I'm going to. I'm going to, you know, know her and, and, and be like her. And so she was just someone that really stood out in the community, making a difference, who had a similar path to mine um, and who was driven. And so mm-hmm. she, I was just attracted to her story and who she was. So mm-hmm. that's kind of a local person I know that I really admire, too. You know, just listening to your path and your journey, you've shared, you know, a number of things in regards to where you've come from and you went out of state, you've come back, you've started your family. But let's take a step back. I want to kind of get into, you know, like, how was it when you initially like transitioned and you left Michigan? You said you left Michigan to do what now? Um, so I left Michigan because. I wanted a new experience. I actually wasn't working in the field in which I studied in undergrad. So in undergrad, technically, I um, graduated from James Madison College. And oftentimes, individuals who graduate from that school, they're on a path to right. law, um, policymaking, um, so governance. And I quickly knew that that was not my path, that my path was more of a path of service and nonprofit mm-hmm. advocacy, um, resource, um, resource, uh, driven work. And so, um, impact work. And so I quickly started to fill out what that looked like. So I actually became a volunteer in service to America in my last year at uh, Michigan state, just to see what that experience would be like. And I actually, during that time I was working in Lansing and I was working in migrant field. So I was working with immigrants doing ESL, English as a second language, through a literacy uh, organization in Lansing and absolutely loved the experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I knew right then I was going to go into nonprofit work. But at the time, the the idea is that nonprofit is just that you don't earn a profit in a living. And I knew I had college debt. So I had to make a living somehow. So I knew that I was able to offer up career services um, just from a professional experience because I've been working since I was 16. So, and I've been working in professional environments since I was 16. So I ended up working for um, a staffing agency and I turned 25 and I was looking at my life and I'm like, this is not (laughs) what I said I was going to do. This is not what I think the calling of my life is. And so what is that? And so I literally just took some time to pray and meditate, turn off the noise And for about a month, I really just focused in on where could I see myself outside of Michigan, if if outside of Michigan is where I needed to be. And so I started to do a deeper dive on what was what did I have passion and interest in? What could I see myself doing? And and I knew that I loved absolutely loved the arts. I was not an artist, but I enjoyed the arts and I understood the value of 
um, the arts and professions within within that um, industry. I knew that I loved education. I knew that I wanted to be in a city, you know, have a cityscape and 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 be in be in a uh, urban environment. And I knew that I wanted to explore some of my own passions, which was love of film and love of fashion. And so that all led me to Chicago. And I, you know, it just, everything aligned where I started sending out my resume and was offered a couple of interviews. And so I drove to Chicago for those interviews and um, identified a place I like to work, which at that time was the Illinois Institute of Art as an admissions counselor. So I was actually recruiting students to attend the school. And I also started taking courses in film at Columbia in Chicago at that time because it was just an area of interest to me. So I just said, you know what, I'm going to start living my my mission. I'm going to start, you know, exploring my passions and figuring out who Katrina mm-hmm. really is. And that was at the age of 25. Wow. So Katrina, you made that sound so smooth, though. Like it was so easy. Like it was a walk <laughs> in the park. You just say, hey, I'm going to go do this. And it opened up to you. Now, is that exact? Oh. Is that how it happened? It was a Okay. Okay. (laughs) So, so it was easy in that once I defined to the universe what it is I desire, it gave it back to me. The challenge was the things that were surrounding me. So what I mean by that is when I shared it and and my mother will agree to this, even though she doesn't want to, but she always bring it up to her. When I went to my mother and I said, mom, I want to move to Chicago. And again, remember, this was after 9-11 when I did this. So I was, you know, I was, that was the same year as 9-11, September um, and uh, 2001. And she was like, I'm praying that you don't get the job. And I'm praying that you don't, me and my my prayer warriors is praying that this doesn't happen for you. So now I got the prayer warriors on my back. And then I'm listening to the news and, you know, how, uh, you know, post 9-11, Everyone was just fearful. We didn't know what, how to, how to even, how to even travel, how to even deal in this mm-hmm. new space, similar, similar to now. To how do we deal in this new right, space? Right. right. So that that was the fear that was being perpetuated over the media, which is why I turned off my television. I turned off the radio, and I had to get quiet within myself to make this decision. But when I made that decision, the universe made it happen. I actually moved to Chicago and didn't even have a place to live. The new job that I took on, I explained that to them. Like, I don't even have a place to live yet. They put me up in a hotel until I found a place to live. So it was just like divine order once I opened up that opportunity for me to pursue that, that dream and that interest and that passion. So it was easy in that sense. It was challenging with those factors around, wow. you know, those influences right. around me. That takes a incredible amount of dedication and focus on you really going after what you know is in your heart, what's in your, you know, in line with what you want to do. Because, again, yeah, that time was similar to now where people are like, you know, afraid to go anywhere because they didn't know what was going on and how to respond mm-hmm. But I would imagine you and your mother probably having a very close relationship and that being another um, factor that kind of could discourage you from thinking like, man, should I really do this? Should I really go? And at what Mm -hmm. point, I mean, was there any times where you kind of was questioning it because of that or were you just like had a vision board 
and you just said, hey, I'm zeroing in on this and I'm applying for jobs online and I'm just going to jump to the first person that calls. So I I did some of what you just mentioned. I did have a vision board. I'm a believer in vision boards. I I'm also quite spiritual. I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. Um, and I just said, God, you know, if this is truly your will and you've given me dominion in this earth, I'm going to speak these things to be. These are the things that are going to come to me. And I believe that they will. And I just I had strong faith. Um, and if it was not of me, I know that it wasn't going to come to me to hurt or to um, impact my relationship with my mom in a negative way, even though she was saying the things she was saying to me. I knew that if it was truly mm -hmm. for me, she would eventually fall in line and that, you know, she's a woman of faith. She understands. And if it was truly in divine order, it would it would turn mm -hmm. out to be that way. Mm -hmm. And it was. She was one of the people who drove me to Chicago mm -hmm. when I moved. And so it was all in divine order. It was her yeah. emotion. Not, not wanting, wanting to, to be that far away. So not wanting to be that far. Yes. <laughs> that's what I got from it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. It was all emotion. It wasn't <laughs> spiritual. She didn't foresee no yeah, yeah. horrible future for me. Quite quite honestly, we had the ball. We had a, the time of our lives uh -huh. in Chicago because it was an awesome yeah. experience um, for me and my family. For me, for my family to see me take that mm -hmm. leap of faith not having any family or friends in Chicago, but taking that step and knowing that all things were in order and that it was going to be a, a good transition for me to have that okay. experience. So how long were you down there? What was your favorite, most favorite part about being in Chicago? Oh my God. So just to give you, just to put it in okay. perspective, I live, this was another, again, divine thing. I said to myself, I want to be in the city, which you, you know, Chicago <laughs> isn't cheap. Um, so I, I need to be able to afford to be in the city, right? Um, I lived at Michigan oh, and Randolph. Wow. And if anyone knows uh -huh. where that is in <laughs> Chicago, that is right off the Magnificent Mile. Grant Park, which isn't what it is today, but it was still Grant Park then, was my backyard. So I, you know, I lived in a high rise. I lived um, at the time on the 16th floor. I'm remembering correctly. And um, yeah, as I, you know, walk to and from home, Grant Park was my backyard. And one of my most favorite memories about being in Chicago, outside of just being able to access the Magnificent Mile whenever I felt like it, when I wanted to dream and do retail therapy and uh -huh. all of that goodness. I was walking home one summer night and um, it was pretty late. My hours at my job were like 10 to 8 because I was, tr I was trying to catch students after school once their families were home, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. So it had to be about 8, 8.30 at night that I was walking home. And at the time, Grant Park had free concerts. And I mean, and they would have just world-renowned celebrities come um, and singers come and perform in Grant Park. And that night, Sting was performing. Oh. And I was walking home and literally being serenaded by Sting, like hearing the entire <laughs> concert as if he was walking next to me singing and I'm just walking <laughs> home. I'm like, life doesn't get better than this. Like, you know, I heard of it all. Right. Yeah. And then every Friday night I would have fireworks in my, in my living wow. room window. I mean, it was insane because the fireworks were right there at wow. one. So um, at Navy Pier. And so um, 
Yeah, I got some awesome memories about being in Chicago. And and what actually brought me back to Michigan was my now husband because um, he proposed and his job was here. He was working for the big three at the time. And and so I could get another job as an admissions counselor. And I did when I returned. I started working for College for Creative Studies. Um, but, you know, the big three is in in Michigan and he had had a lot of years in, in on his, in his role at his job. And so we made the decision for me to move. Okay. Back. All right. Well, we're glad to have you back, but I'm listening <laughs> because we <laughs> wouldn't have met. I don't know as soon as we did, uh, but listen to your description of your time in Chicago and that leap of faith you took. I'm just wondering like, all of that magnificence that you experienced, you would have missed it. You know, Absolutely. it created an opportunity for, I would imagine your faith to grow stronger because of how you took that leap and the rewards you received because of how mm-hmm. you stepped out in faith and you were like, Hey, I'm going ahead and believe I'm going to go forward and do it. And as you said, the universe and everything opened up to you to be able to have that great opportunity, everything fell in line. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It, it was, um, you know, it, it's a lot to be said to believe in, in yourself. Um, you have to believe in yourself. And I mean, I had never lived outside of Michigan. I told you my undergrad was here. And um, when, even when I grabbed to the Millinder center in downtown Detroit. So, I mean, I had not, lived outside of truly outside of Michigan and so it was a huge leap and one that I to this day I'm so happy that I did and I I actually encouraged my daughter to have that experience because I I had an opportunity to truly um, do what they call adulting right now I was able to adult on my own and and hit my head at times and pick up the pieces and, and, and really learn to be independent, learn to date myself. That was another thing. Um, because at the time I wasn't in a relationship. Um, I had, um, I had, uh, let go of a long-term relationship I had been in and I literally opened myself up to that opportunity and, and it really did pay off for me. Um, in a whole, in, in a host of ways that continue to, I continue to reap the rewards from even today. Wow, that's incredible. That's incredible. So with all of those great experiences you shared, you um, moved back to Michigan after you left Chicago. You got engaged. I would imagine shortly after you had your baby. Mm, very, uh, very shortly after. <laughs> shortly after. Shortly after. <laughs> Real shortly after. Didn't waste any time. <laughs> oh, we didn't waste no time. You know, that's that's the beauty too about my marriage, right? So, one thing I can say about myself: if I'm in, I'm in. You know, I am. I'm a hundred percent in, and so I was a hundred percent in when it came to. Uh, Mr. Donald Studman, he he just he captured my attention and he kept my attention. And um, I mean, I'm fortunate to have experienced really true love, authentic love and to be courted the way I was courted even during that time. And I mean, those are things that you just 
you can't trade for anything in the world, the good, the bad, the indifferent. You still have that experience. You've been fortunate enough to experience that that level of love in your life. So, yeah, I um, Yeah, we, we had our daughter shortly, shortly after she was born the same year we got married. <laughs> OK, <laughs> Is that we were married awesome. May. We were married May 2004. She was born November 2004. Okay. So okay. And I do the math on that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the math is not even important <laughs> because what I got from what she shared is that authentic love yeah. that you all captured. And that's beautiful for you to even be able to even put it to words how you did it just inspired so many other women you said you recorded in a, in a remarkable way what does that mean Katrina oh my some Ooh, women please. today young ladies may not even be familiar with the whole idea of courtship wow that's okay so um what was nice about the courtship that my husband and I had was, like I said, we met in May and uh -huh. we did not have our first date until July. So that means all of that time that passed, those couple of months, that 90 days was spent over the phone mm. talking, mm. not in each other's face, not intimate, not any of those things. Honestly, he had to remind me how he looked because remember now this is a little back in the day. So oh y'all wasn't FaceTime. Wasn't no FaceTime. Oh, man, that's no <laughs> no real, real love. <laughs> wasn't no Zoom. Wasn't no nothing. We were on a you know either a landline or a cell phone. Oftentimes it was a landline, and we were chatting it up till whatever hours we hours in the morning and. um we decided 4th of July weekend, which was the Taste Fest weekend in Chicago, he would come and visit. Mm -hmm. And I told you we were a lot. So my husband being another person that's a lot, he drove his motorcycle to Chicago to visit me for the first time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So... Uh, he has his own little story about how he got pulled over on his way because he was like... He used to drive the motorcycle quite ridiculously, but um, he couldn't wait to get to you. He, he, it, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he he's on his way, and I haven't seen this guy since May. And long story short, we agree to meet on the street because that's nothing. You're not coming to my house. I don't really know you like that. We we know each other, but not really, right? Mm -hmm. And right. so we said, okay, we'll meet each other on the street. And so I met him. Um, he told me where he would be parking his bike. And again, this is 4th of July weekend uh, in Chicago and Taste Fest. So, you know, streets are shut down, all that goodness. He had his own hotel room, but I didn't meet him at his hotel room because he could be a murderer, right? Who knows? I mean, he's been nice on the phone, but or he could have not been cute. That's the other thing. That's the real thing. Because <laughs> you forgot what he looked so, like. <laughs> I forgot what he looked like. So we going to meet on a random street. And we said, okay, we're going to try not to walk past each other. We should know each other, right? Uh -huh. And so um, I'm walking, I'm walking, I'm walking. And then I see this tall, because he is taller than me. I'm 5'11". So for me to call someone tall, that means he's at least six feet or high, you know, taller. Uh -huh. So he is six feet. Tall, dark-skinned guy walking towards me. Um, I almost passed him. 
But then I was like, something in me was like, that's him, that's him, that's him, that's him. And it was him. And then, yeah, our weekend started. And uh, I felt like, I always say, I equate that weekend to Purple Rain because I felt totally like Prince and Apollonia because the whole weekend, his motorcycle was our transportation. Uh Um, (laughs) Which I had never, ever rode on a motorcycle before that. (laughs) Brave soul. 20, like I said, at this point, I'm 27. Uh um, And um, had never had that experience, but I mean, it was awesome from from the the night that we met up and, you know, I checked him out kind of as we walked to his hotel and he checked in and then I immediately called my girlfriend like, he's actually handsome. Oh, my God, he's cute. Oh, my God, this might be good. And, you know, all of that. And, okay, I got to go. He on his way back over here. Click, you know, and then... You know, that night I was, you know, absolute lady and he was an absolute gentleman. It got dark and goes, oh, let me walk you home. I'm like, listen, I live in Chicago by myself. I got pepper spray. I don't need you to walk me home. You know, in Miss Independent, uh-huh. he was like, no, I'm here now and it wouldn't be right. It's not the gentlemanly thing to do to let a woman leave, you know, my hotel, you know, because we had been downstairs at the restaurant chatting it up and all that goodness and He was like, nope, wouldn't be the gentlemanly thing to do for me to not escort you home or make sure you made it safe. And And at this time, were you still kind of leery of him knowing where you live at? Or you was like, yes. So this is what I did. Yes. So then I I, I got to a certain point and I was like, okay, thank you. And he was like, well, this isn't your home. I'm like, this is far enough. Thank you. (laughs) But then... But then um, the next morning, I met him in that same spot, which was really Grant Park, right? Because that's that's kind of the vicinity that we were in right off of uh, Michigan and, and right the entrance of Grant Park is where I was meeting him because mm-hmm. that was not that far from my house. Mm-hmm. So that morning he showed up and um, we started our date day and um, he did what most men don't like to do, which is go window shopping, you know, talk. Most men are not talkers, but he was talking about stop and window shopping with me. And we, we had, you know, lunch and lunch turned into uh, dinner. He had his bike towed. Oh my goodness. He was, so we walked out. This is while we walked out of our lunch date, we're walking towards his bike and we're like, Oh, we parked here. Right. You park right. Can you park here? Lo and behold, there's a tow truck sitting there. He goes, man, your bike is gone. Oh, wow. He was like, you know, you know it's Taste Fest weekend, so they're really strict on the guidelines. I can take you to your, you know, to your bike for this amount of money. And so he has to take him to so his he bike. So he got his bike out of impound. Pulled over before he got there. Yep. And his bike got towed while he was there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And, and then he gets his bike and, you know, still, still man of honor, you know, okay, let me go back to the hotel and get my mind together <laughs> and let's meet this evening. So by then he had earned the right to come to my house. It was like, okay, you know, this evening when we meet back up, you can meet me downstairs at my, at my actual apartment building, okay. my, my, my condo place. Uh-huh. So he did meet me that evening. Um, and uh yeah so he finally that the second day i did allow him to come to my space um not my not my actual apartment but downstairs in my lobby okay um so how long have you all been so married now 
16 years next month. Congratulations. What I didn't tell you is that our first date was in July, 4th of July, and he proposed September 11th that same year. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And 16 years later, Uh, we're talking about a real love story here. A real love story. And you know what? If that wasn't enough to make him run away from that bike issue, man. <laughs> it sounds like he went through and through with that oh, he bike. Did. He did. But, you know, you're worth it. And you all are here 16 years later. That's the beauty. That's the blessing. And I wanted... So tell us about, you know, your story as you began and you started to have you know a family oh oh so you know with love the cooing and loving of each other that piece is awesome and then life challenges hit and when life challenges hit one thing that we did realize at that point was we didn't know each other enough we know we knew the good parts about each other we knew that we loved each other but what we didn't know was how each other dealt with obstacles, challenges, unforeseen issues. We didn't know that about each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it became, it it was rough Um, because we were married in 2004. Like I said, I had my daughter um, that same year. And in 2006, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And so we were still a very young couple, right. newly married couple. Right. That's only that's less than two years in, really, wow. um, into the marriage. And so, you know, we, we hit some really challenging times during that during that peak. If it's OK, if we can just pause for a moment and talk about your experience, a time where you were young you were 30 years old then, if I'm doing the math correctly. You were diagnosed mm-hmm. with cancer? Mm-hmm. 30 years old. Um, didn't know of a history of cancer in my family because I am African-American. And quite often within our communities, we don't really talk about illness. Um, I came from a family that, you know, just believed in, you know, just pray about it. Got to heal it. What goes on in my house stays in my house. Um if auntie, uncle, cousin was going through something, you were too young, stay in a child's place. Um, if you caught them crying or talking about it, um, you know, she, she's just dealing with something and we just going to pray about it. And again, the, the, the actual issue was never really talked about or addressed. Mm. So at the time that I was diagnosed, I had no clue that anyone in my family had been diagnosed with cancer. And I had found out after going through my cancer journey that I had a great aunt that had had cancer, breast cancer. Mm. And I, I didn't know about it. I had no clue that that's what she had experienced. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it was it was challenging. 30, I, I had a baby in diapers. I was newly married. Yeah. And um, we were looking at the time we were looking for a home and all these life things. And so I was about the business of getting through breast cancer so I could get back to my life. Mm -hmm. And what I didn't realize was that my life was never going to be the same after going through breast cancer. Mm -hmm. It was going to be a new, a new journey and a new normal for me. Wow. 
Wow. How did you learn about, how did you learn that you had it? Like, what was that discovery process? Or Honestly, it was uncomfort in my, in my body. I kept having um, discomfort with my bra. Um, and finally, I'm in the shower and haphazardly doing a self-exam. Not that I did them religiously. Not that I knew enough to know I needed to do them, but I didn't consistently do them monthly or anything like that. I just happened to, you know, pretty much touch the touch the um, area that I was feeling the discomfort in and I felt something. Mm. And I originally thought, because my mother did share with me, this was thank God that my mother had, she shared with me that she had had benign cyst in her breast because my mother would go, go and oftentimes she would say, I'm going for a procedure, you know, I'll be okay, but it's a procedure and I might have to lay down when I get home. And it's because she would have these calcifications aspirated from her breast they're um, just kind of like these hard calcium deposits that um, form in women's breasts. And then they would either cause, you know, cause discomfort or um, if they didn't, they would just exist. Well, they caused her a lot of discomfort. And so they would take a needle and extract the fluid from those, um, those cysts. I mean, yeah, those cysts. And so I actually thought that's what I was getting. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm older now. I'm a woman. I'm just turning into my mother. Mm-hmm. So I must be having one of those benign cyst things that she talks about, a fibroid. Mm-hmm. And so I went to my mom, not the doctor, and said, Ma, touch this. Is this what you normally have? And she was like, I'm not a doctor. You have to go to the doctor, Katrina. Mm-hmm. And so I went, and my doctor at the time, you know, I'm so fortunate. She said, um, you know, this is what I'm feeling. I do feel something. So you are right. And we're going to treat this aggressively. We're going to get you a mammogram at age 30. And remember, most oftentimes, the recommendation is that you have your first mammogram at the age of 40. So I was 10 years out from getting my first mammogram. Wow. That's Mm mind-blowing. That's mind-blowing. And I I would imagine you were, were you scared or like, what was going through your mind and what, what was happening? I wasn't scared because, again, I had seen my mother go through it and survive it, which, again, my my the the extent of my thought was, oh, God, I got a calcification. They're going to stick me with a really big needle. And, oh, God, Mm -hmm. I was not thinking anything else. I cancer was not. Matter of fact, when I went to go get the results of my mammogram, um, well, I would say this. When I went to have my mammogram, I was asked to stay behind. And I saw women coming and going with their mammogram. I'm like, why are they asking me to say they must see this cyst I must have this cyst and so finally the lady said we actually want to take a needle biopsy and a needle biopsy is where they actually go into the breast and snip a small portion of what it is they're seeing um, to test Mm -hmm. it and so they did that and I was waiting for the results from that test and I was waiting 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 and finally they called me and I actually was at work and I told you I worked for the College for Creative Studies, so it's right down the street from Harper Professional. Mm-hmm. So I said, I'll walk down and get my results. I didn't take anyone with me. I walked down there on a lunch break, expected to be back within an hour. And it was at that doctor's appointment I was told that I had um, breast cancer. Wow. Wow. News that you would have never imagined because you're thinking it was something completely different. And something that was in a whole different realm from what you're sharing. And 
at that time, that moment, what happened, Katrina? Like, how did you, how did you feel? Um, I felt like it was a cruel joke and that it wasn't real, which is so weird to say, but I'm like, okay, maybe because I was harassing her for my results that she's now playing this cruel joke on me to say I have cancer. Okay. What do I really Mm. have? And she just kept looking at me and I'm looking at her like, when is she going to say psych? And she's still looking at me and I'm like, this is real. I don't even know what to do with this. What does this even mean? I don't even know enough about cancer to even know what the diagnosis even means to say you have cancer. I mean, I was just shocked. Mm-hmm. So I actually called my coworker and said, um, so I was just diagnosed with breast cancer. And my coworker is like, where are you? And I'm like, I walked down to my appointment. And she goes, well, do you want me to pick you up? And I'm like, sure. Like, I didn't even right. know what to do. I didn't even know what my next step should mm-hmm. be. I didn't call family or my husband or anyone. I called my coworker just to say, hey, sorry, I'm running late, but this is what she told me. Mm. So it was a very weird space because mm-hmm. I was given information that I didn't know. I didn't have no clue on how to even tar- start to dissect what I was given, mm-hmm. what I was being told. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And listening to you share that, it just makes me think of like, period, that experience, I would it just makes you think there's never a time when anyone can be prepared for such information. No, no matter who they are, no matter mm-hmm. what age they are, but especially at 30 years old, that's the last thing that you would think. And to have you, you here sharing your stories today and how you overcame it and how you are a survivor is beyond encouraging for anyone listening or anyone that sees you. And I appreciate you being open and transparent to share that story and experience with us because I know so many people right now in the world are hurting for different reasons. Mm-hmm. They're hurting, you know, because of the loss of a loved one due to coronavirus. Then they still have loved ones who may have passed from some other illness. But there are individuals who are recovering and who's getting through the process of this pandemic who are overcoming the coronavirus or other diseases or who are other um Individuals dealing with cancer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, are, what are some things that you can share that help you get to where you are today? What does your support system look like? And what did you do to stay encouraged? Well, um, that's a really great question. So um, once I uh went to my appointments to better understand what the diagnosis actually meant and what was going to be the treatment options um, and the impact of those treatment options on my family. I then became very narrowly focused on the business of getting healthy. Um, I think I did some things good in that journey. And I think, I think I did some things that, if I had the opportunity to do it again, I would I would reconsider um, the path I chose. So the things I felt like I did do good was I was very mindful of the company that I kept. I did not allow myself to um, 
to allow negativity in my space. What I meant by that was um, with the diagnosis that young and that aggressive, um, people started to mourn me, if you know Mm -hmm. what I mean. And so even what like the coronavirus, there are those who hear, oh, you've been diagnosed. They start to mourn you. And it's like, no, I don't need mourning right now. I need Mm -hmm. I need you to stand with what I believe is true, which is I'm going to fight this. I'm going to get through it. And I need your love, your energy, and your support through this. And if you can't offer that up, I respect that. But then that means that I don't have the space for you right now because I need all that I can get in love and light and support and energy. So I really limited the people that were in my space. I didn't, I didn't shut people out. That's, that's, you know, there's a difference. I just limited what energy was kept in the space in which I was in. So only good vibes was allowed. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Protected your space. Yeah. Um, (laughs) What I would do different is I reacted so quickly because I was, I was reacting at times out of emotion and fear. And so, for example, instead of taking time to really dissect what they were saying, um, the impact of my treatment will be on uh, my life moving forward after cancer, life after cancer. Um, I would take more time in understanding that because I was 30 years old. So I had a lot more living to do. And I didn't think much on after I survived it, what that my life would look like. Do I want more children? Um, what would my quality of life and living be? Um, what does that mean for stress management moving forward? Um, what does that mean for um, diet? I was just about the business of getting through it. So it was like, okay, you know, we recommend that you have a mastectomy. Done, mastectomy. We recommend that you have aggressive chemotherapy. Boom, done. We also recommend that you have you know, a tube ligation, you know, we want to tie your tubes because the type of breast cancer you had is hormonal positive, done, tie them, no more. Mm -hmm. Just not thinking through what that meant for the rest of my life with the decisions that I was making so quickly in the Mm -hmm. moment out of the fear and emotion of the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. So, Katrina, do you think, though, because you didn't have any landmark to go off of, you, at the time, it sounded like you were just doing what you felt would be best. Do you not think that was the case? You feel no, like it was I felt like it was, no, I felt like it was what was best. But then, so fast forward. After I went to breast cancer, five years later, I'm actually working for a breast cancer organization at the time, Susan G. Komen. And I'm actually the race co-chair and I'm doing all these wonderful things to impact the disease. Never thought of a million years I'd be doing that type of work at that level. And then I put pause on it and said, I'm going to go to this young woman's conference because I really want to impact young women with breast cancer even more. So I'm going to go to this conference and learn a little bit more about what that means. And it was called Young Survival, it was Young Survival Coalition. Um, and it was Living Beyond Breast Cancer. They teamed up to have this young woman's conference. 
And I went to the conference and what I realized was I had put several things in my life on a shelf and hadn't dealt with them. And one of them was fertility. One of them was having more children because I had made such a drastic, quick decision. I didn't even realize that you could have children after breast cancer. I thought you couldn't. And I'm sitting at this conference and the lady's like, you know, yeah, you can have babies afterwards. You guys are young and these are the things you need to look for. And this is the test you need to have. And I'm sitting there mind blown because I made the decision to tie my tubes. I made the decision to have a tubal ligation. Gotcha. So I was like, wait, what? I didn't Mm -hmm. have to do that. I Mm could have had babies. I could have, you know, so it was just like, wait a minute. I, I made some very hasty decisions. And to your point, given the amount of information I had at that time, I think I made the best decisions for myself at that time. But looking back, I would have asked more questions. I would have considered my life post-treatment and what that would be before making some of those decisions. It's not saying that the decisions might have changed. I might have still made the same decision to move forward. But I would at least give in thought to my life post breast cancer, you know, coming you out said, of treatment. Okay. Okay. I get you. So, and you said you went to an event that a conference. was a conference that was specifically designed to help women become more educated on yes. the whole process, right? Mm-hmm. So and I thought I was going for work. You know, I'm like, okay. oh, I'll just be bringing this back for other women. I wasn't going to unpack my stuff. I was going to, you know, be a resource for others, you know? Okay. Okay. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds like you're saying to be empowered with education is key. Going through the process, learning about, about all the different options and information so that you will be able to have more options mm-hmm. and how you were informed of that information by going to the conference. Were you involved in other events and conferences while you were going through the process or you just kind of went to your doctor's appointments and didn't do anything else? Went to my doctor's appointments, you know, left mm-hmm. it at whatever they said was the gold standard, like, you know, gotcha. and, and I trust them wholeheartedly. I'm going to do everything that they said I should do and move forward. Okay. didn't really do much research on my own. I mean, I did some as far as for diet and holistic, you know, things that I could do, but um, not to the depth of, again, what do I want my quality of life to be post-treatment? Right, right, right. I hear you. And you mentioned you also now work. And five years later, you started working for Susan G. Coleman. How did they come about? volunteerism. So I tell any, any young woman, any young person, you know, volunteer, that's how you get to one, give back. You get to meet people and connect. Um, you get to build relationships. I was volunteering after the, after I'd gone through breast cancer, my family got the great idea that we should walk in the, um, Coleman Detroit race for the cure. And so that would kind of be my victory celebration. And so I signed up and I met one of the ladies who was leading the volunteers for the race. And 
she was surprised to see me because they hadn't seen very many young black women part of the race. And so Mm -hmm. I shared my story and she goes, you know, you should share your story with more people. And I'm like, eh, no, Um, I'm just trying to get through this thing, get back to my life and move it along. So she said, okay, well, what if I asked you to stand on the stage with a sign that said you were less than one year survivor? And I was like, oh, I don't have to talk. She was like, no, I'm like, oh, I can do that. And so Mm -hmm. I volunteered to stand on the stage when they, they do what they call a survivor um, parade. And I had a sign that said less than one year. My hair was just growing back. It was short and curly. Um, mm-hmm. And when I stood on that stage, I wasn't expecting to get the responses that I saw and felt. I saw people crying. I saw people mouths dropped open in shock to see me standing there less than one year and I was young. Um, mm-hmm. I saw women cheering me on. It was a sprinkling of a few African-American women in the, in the crowd who became who I now call my seasoned girlfriends. Um, Cause I had never really seen black women who had gone through breast cancer. So they were my first visual of that. And mm-hmm. the emotion and the impact of me standing there with just that sign and not saying nothing, it really impacted my life. And so I said, you know what? I really do need to share my story. Because more people need to understand that this can impact anyone. It's not a respecter of age. This disease is not a respecter of race. It's not a respecter of sex. Men can get breast cancer too. It's not a respecter of socioeconomic status. You can be rich, poor, middle class and get it. Wow. Wow. Not only a survivor, but you went back. You had the strength and the courage to be able to volunteer. Because I would imagine that would have been somewhat emotional in the beginning, right? Yeah. Of being absolutely. able to deal with it. Yeah. But here you are today as the chief development officer of Carmino's Cancer Institute. Would you have ever imagined that? Never. And in, in a million years, the place where I received my treatment is the place wow. I now represent um, as a C-suite executive, um, really, um, going out soliciting funding for them so that they can continue the amazing work that they have done for many decades. I'm honored. Wow. Now, what is that role like and how did that fast forward in a quick, you know, synopsis, Katrina, because I know the listeners are just like blown away. Like, wow, that's beyond incredible that she had not only came back and became a volunteer, but now she is a chief development officer. Yeah, real quick. Um, I was working for the race. I worked for the race for seven years. I was the race chair. The race eventually, um, the leadership at the headquarters asked that the race becomes its own foundation, 501c3. So I um, transitioned the Coleman Detroit Race for the Cure into its own 501c3. And at that time, the president of Carmana said, you know, I'd like for you to consider a role that I have for you. And I'm like, what would you ever have for me to do at Carmanis? That's huge. You know, one of 51 comprehensive cancer centers in the country. And he said, I I want you to be our chief development officer. I want you to um, thank people for supporting us. I want you to then ask them for their support again. And then I want you to thank them again. And so that's my job in a nutshell. I thank people for supporting and aligning themselves with the work that we do at Carmanis. 
I solicit them for support again for the many things that we do from research to patient care to our infrastructure needs, um, meaning the, the, you know, the expenses of running a business in that, that capacity. And then I thank them again, um, educating the community about the work that we do there and our charge, which is to eradicate cancer. It's a lot mm-hmm. different than a cancer center that provides treatment. A comprehensive cancer center um, is actually on the front line of eradicating the disease. And that's mm-hmm. big. Okay. And I was reading in your bio that you introduced new fundraising models to help with the foundation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So really trying to think outside of the traditional box. There's a There's a few fundraising models that are traditional, right? You go to a fundraiser, they ask you for a gift, you give, um, and then you had, you know, you leave, had a great time. What I'm looking to do is to align people with the work that we're doing on an ongoing basis, Uh, make them really the stakeholders of our work, reporting back to them the advancements and the accomplishments that have been made because of their gifts, and then getting their input on how we move forward. The more you align with the donor, it's more than just a transactional gift. It's a transformational gift because they feel empowered in that same work um, that they are affording us to do. Um, I also solicited um, individuals to work for me that were non-traditional fundraisers. Most people who have been in fundraising, they do it in a number of capacities, whether it's in the health industry, for education, you know, raising dollars for colleges or raising dollars for, um, you know, nonprofit, um, community-based organization. Well, I actually employed a nurse to be my major gift officer because who better else understands the critical needs of the front lines than a nurse? And she can Mm -hmm. speak to the opportunities that a gift that a donor can give and what that then translates to as it relates to a physician, a nurse, a staff associate, uh, uh, you know, epidemiologist, she can translate to that donor what it really means to be on the front line of receiving a gift like that. And that mm-hmm. speaks volumes to a donor. Mm. Okay. That's phenomenal. Speaking outside the box, mm-hmm. do work that helps the agency continue to grow and be what it is today. And not only that, you are African-American female who is making a difference in the world just in your ability to be a great leader. But I also want to acknowledge your realness, your humbleness, like just talking to you, interacting with you. It's incredible for someone in your line of work to be able to take the time to sit down and talk, take the time to mentor, take the time to join a podcast or just whatever it may be. And I appreciate the fact that you do give back in that capacity and that you're just a real, you're a real person, you know, and for any young lady, my age or younger, being able to aspire to work in different capacities, I think that is really awesome how you really are just like, hey, I'm here, I'm available to be able to offer that support to the next person. Well, thank you. I mean, someone did it for me. So it would be quite selfish of me not to pay it forward. And so I try to when I can and and however I can pay it forward. 
Thank you for paying it forward because we need a lot more of that in the world today. <laughs> so thank you for doing that. Awesome. How do you recharge with your busy days? Like what is some healthy remedies that you do to recharge? Oh my goodness. Great question. Especially in this climate. Um, I have realized that, um, I was running on E for a while there. So in this space, though there's challenges with the time that we're currently in, these unprecedented times, it has allowed me to refocus myself on what I know to be true to help recharge myself. And that's meditation. Um, that is mindfulness. That is um, self-care and self-love. Um, that is um, really... Um, doing some, doing some work on myself, you know, affirmations and, um, asking myself some hard questions in the mirror, standing in that mirror for a little longer. I'm always rushing out the house and I'm always coming and going, but to be still and to sit in it, um, it, this time has allowed me to do some of that and I think I'm better for it. So you know, definitely I recharge in those ways. Um, I definitely believe in exercise. One of the great things about this quarantine is that I've been able to do, I've been able to participate in all sorts of exercise courses across the states. Like I think I took a yoga course in Austin, Texas the other day. I connected, I connected with this woman on Instagram and she's in California. I mean, you know, I've been I've been right. all over the world, you know, just kicking it and aligning with people. I've been at, you know, house parties with D Nice and Michelle Obama, and you know, it's just been cool. It's right, been cool. right. We can do see inside of people's homes yes. across the globe, chill and exercise yeah. and dance. Yeah. <laughs> so that's been pretty cool. You mentioned you look in the mirror and ask yourself some hard questions. I don't know if I've ever done that. Ooh. You know. How the hard questions, is that something that you just think about you as a whole or things you're seeking to aspire? Like, how do you know what questions to, how does that process work? All of it. Everything that you just said, um, sometimes just looking in the mirror, you probably don't even realize that you don't even take time to look at yourself, truly look at yourself. You're probably looking in the mirror just to see if, you know, you got crust in your eye or you put your lipstick on right and it isn't smeared. Um, but looking in that mirror and saying, are you OK? And then hmm. sitting with that. And my okay. guess is something's going to come up. Either a smile and you check in and say, I'm really good. I really feel good. And for the first time, I'm acknowledging that I feel good or yeah. It may come up like I'm numb right now. I'm not even hmm. feeling. So why is that? Um, or, you know, the emotion of sadness and other things may come up. Um, mm -hmm. Looking in the mirror and, and, and asking yourself, am I where I want to be? And a simple question. Do you recognize the difference when you do that in the mirror versus that in the mirror? Because yes. I can, I do that, yes. but I don't do it in the yes. mirror. Yes, because then you're becoming accountable to yourself. You're facing yourself. You're reading, you're reading the body language that you are presenting in that mirror. Mm. When you're not looking at that, okay. you might be doing something that you don't even recognize. You may be sitting slumped over in a chair, 
saying, am I happy with my job? Well, yeah, I mean, this is good. This is good. But your posture and your language and your face is saying something different, but you don't even see it happening because you're not visually, you're not visual to yourself. You're more your head, mm-hmm. right? Right, so if you're right. in front of a mirror right. and you're asking yourself and you're slumped over in your chair and that mirror is in front of you and your face is squinted up and you're responding, yeah, because this, 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 this. But you'll see that you really are saying no. You're seeing the no sign. <clears throat> right, right, because of your body language. I'm going to try that mm-hmm. this week. I encourage you to. I also that encourage is- women to look uh, beyond their face in the mirror. I would always tell women, especially young women, you know, we'll show our bodies to others. We'll show our bodies to men. We'll put on a low-cut shirt. We'll do all of that. But I don't think we take two seconds in the mirror to just take that mirror and scan it a little lower and actually look at our breast. Most often, breast cancer is seen visually. There's more signs to breast cancer that are visual Mm -hmm. than it is non-visual. So when you hear people say, oh, I felt a lump, it probably was some visual signs in the breast that we ignored before it got to a lump. Mm -hmm. Like Like um, what? Skin irritation. Uh, there could be redness in the okay. breast. There could be a size mm-hmm. difference. Well, there could be swollen. Your breast could be swollen. There could be indentation in the nipple. There could be inverting of the nipple. There could be scaling of the nipple, a little bit of scaly skin. Um, there could be, um, those are just some of the signs that are breast cancer. Okay. The, more, the one you hear about most often is I felt something, but there were some signs right. there. That, that area was probably swollen. By the time that I had my surgery, my, the, the, the lump that they, they extracted was seven centimeters and the cancer had spread outside of that lump, which is why I had to have a mastectomy. So there were some signs in my mm. breast that this golf ball yeah of a lump was sitting in my breast. My breast was, was one heavier, you know, two redness, you know, that I just was ignoring. And I'm like, ah, eh, it's my bra. And eh, I just worked too hard today and was picking up Alyssa, which is my daughter. Cause she was a baby. And maybe I just bumped myself, you know, we're justifying what we're truly feeling in our bodies instead of mm-hmm. checking in with our bodies. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's good. That's real good. That's you don't get realer mm-hmm. than that. <laughs> That's good. So, ladies, take the time and look at your body, you know, and make it a conscious effort to look at yourself in the mirror and ask those hard questions. But check your body out. Check yourself out from head to toe, and just see what you're working with. And before we wrap up, you know, that was incredible information, Katrina. I want to ask you, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? <laughs> I don't know why this came up. That's not, that's not a, that's a loaded question. Huh? <laughs> it is. This, this older lady told me, don't waste your pretty. And I'm like, what, what does she mean by that? What that means is don't waste your time feeling insecure, not looking your best, um, letting things stress you out. Don't waste your pretty. Don't waste it for nobody or for nothing. 
Stand in your beauty. Mm. Own it. And that speaks for any and everything. Your career, your relationship, how you look, how you dress, how you feel about yourself, how you interact with others, how you navigate this life. Each of us are created in God's mm -hmm. image and we're beautiful. Don't waste that pretty. Mm -hmm. mm. I love that. I'm a post set. I'm a post that one. Don't waste your pretty. I mean, that speaks and that mm. continues to speak. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Don't waste your pretty. That might be the name <laughs> of this episode. I love it. <laughs> So as we get ready to wrap up, Katrina, I thank you for your time today. I thank you for sharing with me and the listeners your story and helping us to understand what it means to just be a survivor, a thriving survivor of breast cancer, but not only that, a winning mother, an awesome wife, and a chief development officer. Just to let you know, it was a phenomenal interview and the information you shared today was certainly helpful for myself and I'm sure any woman listening because it's those hard-hitting questions that you brought up and those hard-hitting questions that we all need to make sure we have with ourselves on a daily basis. So thank you again oh, for being a part of She's a Genius. Me. It was an honor. I appreciate you. It was easy to to talk with you. So I think you pulled it out of me. So thank you. Thank you for giving me a safe space to share, share my little, my little life stories. We all have our own. We do. We do. Yes. You, this is a safe space and I'm going to be calling you soon for some more of this <laughs> incredible advice. All right. Well, stay safe ladies and everyone listening. Stay safe. Be encouraged. Remember, don't waste your pretty. This is another episode of She's a Genius. This is the Detroit is Different Podcast Network, the culture of an American classic city. Right for my city, yeah, you know that's how I roll. Love for my people, yeah, you know that's how I flow.